Heavenly Father, we come to you desperately needy for your word. Desperately needy to have you speak to us. To reveal yourself to us. So that we might see ourselves rightly. So that we might see our just deserts. And so that we can revel in and love and adore the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. So God, as we take a look at Micah today, we pray that the gospel will be clear through this text. That your one message of redemption through your Son, Jesus Christ, would be made known to us. And not only in our heads, but in our hearts, so that we might be transformed by it. God, we are here to honor you, and I pray that you are honored in the preaching of your word. To the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for being here, guys. Um, Hey, I don't know if life has taught you this lesson yet or not, but there is no such thing as a sure thing. Have you guys figured that out yet? Have you figured that out? I mean, if you played sports or even if you're just a fan of sports, you know that the undefeated teams can always lose, right? They can lose to the worst team. You know that there's no such thing as a sure thing when it comes to school, right? You get this class and you've gone through the entire semester and it's just been a piece of cake. It's been an absolute breeze. And so you think you're just going to coast on through. Comes a finals week and you're like, you know what? I can study for this easy breezy test or I can, you know, pursue other interests. I'm sure that for all of you that is rigorous study. You know, I know that you guys are good and faithful students, right? But when you get to that test, when they put it down on the desk in front of you, you hear this thud. And it is the hardest test you've ever seen in your life. Or maybe, maybe you think that you're a shoe in for a job promotion. You know, you've, you've been working your tail off. You've been receiving a lot of compliments from the boss. All roads seem to go. And you're thinking, yeah, I've got this thing in the bag. So you start bragging your, your coworkers about how you know, next week you're going to have this office over in the corner. And then you're going to be you know, telling them what to do. And it's going to be awesome. And they're just going to have to come to you and... and, and and kiss up a lot in order to get what they want. But as soon as you get back to the office, you open up your email and you've got a memo from your boss and they've just given the job to somebody else. Or maybe, or maybe you just think, things are going really well for me right now, in this time. I, I've got to be doing something right. I mean, things are, things are great. My wealth is increasing. Life is comfortable. Life is easy. Things are good. I mean, God must be looking favorably upon me. I must be one of His children because He's continued to bless me time and again. Well, that's exactly what Micah is preaching against. Micah's peers, the Israelites, believe that because they were sons of Abraham, that, and because they followed formal religi- religious rituals that had been passed down to them from Moses, that they were the people of God. You see, at the time, though uh, Assyria was making a threat on their nation, they were experiencing some real prosperity as a nation. They, they, were, they were wealthy. Things were good. And so they thought, okay, because, because we're the people of God and because we're receiving this blessing, man, we must be upright. We must be doing well. Because they believe that God blesses the upright, which is true. God does bless the upright. But that does not mean that prosperity is proof that you are upright. In their case, prosperity led to the corruption of their leaders who coveted and stole from the poor and marginalized. Prosperity led to judges taking bribes rather than upholding justice. Prosperity led to false worship as the people believed that they could just placate God, just like all the other pagan deities. If they go and they would appease Him, they would offer sacrifices, that they would feed their God, that He would give them what they wanted. Prosperity led the religious leaders, even, to line their pockets, speaking half-truths 
telling people what they wanted to hear. And prosperity led them to hardening their hearts against the Lord. Instead of doing justice, instead of loving kindness, instead of walking humbly with their God, they did injustice. They spurned the kindness of God. And they neglected and were cruel to one another. They did not walk humbly with God. Instead, they tried to use Him as a means to their own end. They rebelled against God in their thoughts, in their words, and in their actions. So it's this situation that Mike is preaching this message of God's judgment. And so today we're going to look at the first oracle. It's going to be a big text. We're going to look at the first two chapters, okay? So you have to bear with me. I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before a fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to a fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And Bethlehem, roll in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan, do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from your standing from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. It was in the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Zaxib shall be deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in, their po- in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his voice or and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall want not Walk haughtily, for this, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he lots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, lest they preach. No one should preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said of the house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women 
Of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From, the chil- from young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanliness that destroys with gr- a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind of lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a better preacher for this people. I will surely assemble you, all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You know, this passage informs us of a problem, a penalty, and a promise. But let's first look at the problem. The problem is essentially this, the glory of God and the sinfulness of man. You know, one of the first verses we memorize as Christians is Romans 3.23. Does anybody know what it is? Can anybody quote it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Yeah. All right. This is is a key verse. And we, we basically understand for all have sinned, right? If we don't, this is what it essentially means. Everybody rebels against God in thought, in word, and in action. That's what it means to rebel. But what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? What does that really mean? You know, Matthew Henry suggests that it means three things. He says, first, we fail to to glorify God as we ought. We fail to give Him the praise and worship that He deserves. Instead, we adore, we love, we cherish, we worship other things. Things like wealth things like possessions, things like family, our reputation, things like ourselves. Matthew Henry says that it also means that we have no reason to glory before God. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. No reason to stand before God and say, look what I have done. You know, we can stand before man and we can seem really impressive. We can have lots of stuff, you know, big house, lots of cars. People find that impressive. We could be really good at sports. People look at that and find that really impressive. We could be a good student. We could be really righteous in all our deeds. And outwardly, we seem like we have it all together. And people will praise us for that. But when we stand before God, we have no reason to boast. A third reason we fall short of the glory of God is that we fall short of being glorified by God. And what I mean by that is that we fail to meet the standard of holiness and righteousness that God requires. Okay? We we fail by our own effort to attain the righteousness that we need if we are to truly stand before God. Therefore, we have no right to be there. No right to receive glory or honor from God because we can't meet that standard. But not only do we fail to meet that standard, one of our biggest problems is that we fail to truly acknowledge how glorious God really is. Instead of acknowledging God's complete transcendence, His complete otherness, His complete perfection, we create God in our own image. We make Him a little bit better than man. And so we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. But that's but how does the Bible describe the glory of God? How does the Bible convey God? Glory means a weightiness, a splendor, a radiance. It it conveys God's worthiness. The glory of God is in his beauty, in his majesty, and in his greatness. His glory is beheld as He spoke all creation into existence by the word of His power. The Bible uses certain symbols to describe God like thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and earthquake. And the Bible talks about how the whole earth trembles before the glory of God. If you've read Isaiah chapter 6, 
Isaiah gives this vision of standing before the glory of God. And do you remember what happens? As the train of, of God's robe filled the temple and it was filled with smoke and the earth was shaking, he fell to his knees and he says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah, a priest and a prophet of God, stood before God and said, I am not worthy. He looked upon his pitiful state and he said, man, I'm a goner. I am in trouble. I do not deserve to be here. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And here Micah has much to say about the glory of God. We saw in verses 1 through 3, the power, might, and authority of God. It talks about how God treads upon the high places, that He reigns over mountains and hills, that God is sovereign over the high places where people build temples to worship the divine. The greatness of His glory causes mountains to melt and valleys to split open. That the mountains melt and pour down like wax, that they flow down as water. You know, Men feel really secure as long as God remains in heaven. But if we were to see this, if we were to see God descend in all His holiness, we would come to the terrifying realization that we are doomed before this awesome and holy God. And so, as just an aside, I want you to kind of think about this if we would spend more time trembling before the Lord and less time trembling before man, we'd actually have much less to fear. It's just a little aside. You know, Micah also displays the glory of God in God's foreknowledge, His providence, and His sovereignty. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, God foretells of the destruction of Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. At this time, Israel was split into two kingdoms. Samaria was the northern capital. And so when he speaks of Samaria, he's speaking of the northern kingdom. And he says he's going to carry out providentially uh, this destruction as he sovereignly directs the Assyrians to destroy her foundations. It talks about completely wiping her out. You know, just rolling all our stones down into the valley and just, you know what, we're going to make this high place a level ground and you can just use it for a vineyard. That's about all it's good for because it has, it is no good in worship to me. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Isaiah is appeared to Micah. They're actually ministering at the same time, okay? And my, and, and it's interesting to get Isaiah's perspective on the Assyrians. If you read Isaiah chapter 10, you read something really fascinating. These are the words of the Lord. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, God's fury. Against a godless nation I will send him, and against people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like mire in the streets. When the Lord has finished with all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if the rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if the staff should lift him who is not wood? God is saying, you are a tool in my hand, Assyria, and I'm going to use you for my purposes. God will wield Assyria as an axe to carry out his judgment on Israel. And though they act according to their own desires, they're doing what they want to do, their, their desires to conquer, therefore they are morally responsible for their actions, yet behind it all is God's sovereign control. He's doing all these things. He's behind all these things. And so we see providentially Israel, though they've had much, the soon they will be wiped out. They will be devastated. So whether they have much or whether they have little, it all comes providentially from the hand of God who both gives and takes away. So blessed be his name. And in Micah, we also see the glory of God displayed in his holiness and faithfulness as he's contrasted with the unholy, the unfaithful Israel. 
chapter 1, verse 5 says that unlike the Israelites who transgress God's law and break his covenant, God is always faithful to his law. He's always faithful to his promises. Unlike those Israelites who sinned against God in their hearts, in their heads, and with their hands, God is completely holy. He cannot sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. God has always been and always will be perfectly righteous. Righteous. He does what is right. He always does what is right. He has always been and will always be perfectly pure, perfectly holy, and perfectly just. So friends, this is the good side of the problem. Okay, as we've seen right up here. The glory of God is the good side of the problem. There is a perfect God who is completely trustworthy, who is without blemish, without fault. He knows it all. He can do all His holy will. Nothing can thwart God's plan. That's the good side of the problem. But Micah not only gives us a description of the greatness of the glory of God, he also paints a vivid picture of the sinfulness of man. Again, I want to look at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Here Micah explains why God in all his glory makes his way to earth to judge man. It says, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Does anyone know what the distinction is between transgression and sin? Transgression is a willful act that is contrary to the law and covenant of God. So it takes an understanding of the law, it, it takes this realization of the covenant, and it's acting in a way to break those things. Sin is a little bit more subtle, because sin can happen not only outwardly as we act, but also inwardly. Sin is breaking the stipulations of the covenant, basically, but that can be worked out in our thoughts. That can be worked out in our heart. And though we may never sin in word or in deed, we can sin in our thoughts. We can betray God. We can rebel against God, even though we never act out and people don't see it. So that's the distinction. But what were some of the sins of Israel mentioned in this text? In verse 7, we see idolatry and immorality. It says that they worship false gods, that they, they bow down and they pay homage to images made of wood or metal or precious stone. Verse 7 says that they paid a prostitute's fee. This doesn't mean that they went out to the street corner and they just found a prostitute. What happens is, is that in fertility religions, they would have the, these, pagan, these pagan religions, they would have a temple, and this, this fee is a fee that's actually paid to a priest to sleep with this cultic prostitute so that God, these gods would, would bless the land or bless their cattle or their herds or ironically bless their wives with fertility. I mean, that was the whole point. So they would pay these fees, they would go sleep with these prostitutes, and hopefully these gods would appease them, give them what they want. Um, but this is clearly against God's intention for right worship. Another, another sin we see is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. There are these corrupt leaders. Micah says that they sit on their beds and they, dis, they devise wickedness. They think about how they can work evil. They look at their positions and they're trying to use them for their own personal gain. They're, they're doing it because it's in the power of their hands. Micah says specifically that they're coveting land. And that they're violently oppressing people in order to steal it, in order to take it away. They desired and took the God-given inheritance of others. And this was a big deal in this time because we realized that when the people of Israel came into the promised land, that God partitioned out different parts of the land and gave them to certain families. And this was meant to be the inheritance of the family. It was meant to stay in the family. Always to be there. And they even had, you could lease your land out for six years, but in the seventh year, in the year of Jubilee, you'd actually get your land back because it was always supposed to maintain yours. So even though they called it selling, it wasn't selling, it was really leasing or renting for six years, and you get it back. But here, these people were in authority. Uh, a good example of this is King Ahab, who uh, in, in 1 Kings 21 stills uh, Naboth's vineyard. He has Naboth killed so that he can, or he has witnesses 
falsely accuse Naboth so that Naboth is stoned to death and he takes his land. And this is what's happening here. People in positions of authority are stealing the God-given inheritance of others. They had no regard for their fellow man. Um, In chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we have this false preaching. See, the religious leaders in Micah's day were preaching half-truths. Okay? They weren't preaching full-out lies, but they were taking from Scripture what they wanted the people to hear. They were talking about the covenant blessings that they would receive as the people of God. So they would basically tell everybody, hey, you're the people of God, and look at all this prosperity that we have. We've got all this wealth. We're obviously upright. We're doing good. I mean, things are okay. So you live the way you want to live. You just keep worshiping God by giving Him the stuff, and God is going to give you what you want because you're God's people. God is going to bless you. And so they ended up, not only were they preaching that, but they were also turning a blind eye to sin, right? Because they knew what was happening. They knew that these leaders were using their positions corruptly, that they were practicing injustice, that the judges were taking bribes and things of that nature. But instead of calling these people out and holding them to the truth, they continued to preach to people what they wanted to hear. And they were paid well to do it. But it's not as though it's only the political leaders and the prophets and the priests who were to blame here. No, the people were to blame too. The people welcomed this preaching. They liked hearing this type of preaching. They did not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their various passions, right? This is what they're doing. They wanted to hear this message, and they happily paid for it. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, they've, they've got some, some guy coming up to him and saying, Hey, God wants you to be happy. So what you've got to do is you've got to worship God. You've got to give him your money and stuff, and God's going to bless you. God wants you to be happy. You can have your best life now. Oh, did I say that out loud? I actually watched this guy on TVN, and uh, this guy, this author, shiny-toothed, slick-haired author, um, <laughs> and he he was, I guess, preaching a message on Titus. I don't know. But he was talking about this woman who came to him, and she's in this troubled marriage. And his advice to her was, you go ahead and get that divorce. God wants you to be happy. And I, I was shocked by that. Because here, you know, being the covenant people of God not only comes with a blessing, but it also comes with a potential curse. And that's what these these prophets were leaving out. That's what these preachers were failing to tell people about. What, what they were not calling them to. And that's exactly what Micah is calling them to. And the people ate it up. They loved it. So therefore Micah declares that all Israelites had made themselves unclean. Not just the political and the religious leaders, but the whole nation. All their sins have defiled them. And as a result, verse 2.8 says that they have risen up as God's enemy. Now, we need to take a step back for a minute and look at ourselves. Because it's really easy to look at this text and say, I'm nothing like the Israelites. I'm not that bad. You know, I, I I don't worship false gods. I've never paid a prostitute. You know, I haven't done any of that kind of stuff. I haven't stolen anybody's land. I haven't oppressed the widows or the poor. I, I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I, I go to church. I, I've been baptized. I, I pray sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm basically good. And that may be true. That may be true. You may not have done any of those things. You know, you may not have bowed down to idols. But let me ask you this. What do you really love? What do you spend your time and your money on? What do you sacrifice for? When you're sitting there with nothing to do, what absorbs your thoughts? Is there any one thing or any, or, or maybe a few things in your life that you just can't seem to shake, that all your attention is driven towards those things? An idol is not just an image that is crafted by the hand of man. An idol is anything that steals the loyalty of you away from God. 
And when we look at idolatry that way, it looks, looks very different. I mean, you may not venerate an image, but what does your heart cling to for ultimate security? Where do you find your happiness in? And what about immorality? You may not pay a prostitute, but how pure is your thought life? How strongly do you desire intimacy with others? And when I say that, I don't just mean sexual intimacy, but just intimacy with others. And how do you act upon that craving? Or what about covetousness? You know, it may be true that you've never actually stolen land or anything from from other people. But do you look at other people's possessions longingly and you want that for yourself? Have you ever thought, is there any way that I can gain that for myself? Maybe, maybe it's this girl that you think is really hot and she's with this jerk of a boyfriend. And you think, if only I could woo her away from him. That's covetousness. And let me ask you this. You may think that covetousness is subtle and not really a big deal, but what would you do if you had the power to do something about it? If you were in a position of authority where you could get what you want and you would not have to bear the reproach, do you think you really wouldn't act on it? you really think that you wouldn't use your position for personal gain? Even if you don't give stuff to yourself, maybe you give it to somebody else to please somebody else. It's all too easy to do. And what about false worship? I mean, do you attempt to please others by telling half-truths or maybe flat-out lies? Do you think, this is kind of another twist on it, do you think that you can buy God with your your ritualistic religion? That if you can just go through the motions and do what God requires, that He's going to be pleased enough and give you what you want. Are you using God as a means for your end? Or do you worship God to be a means for His end? Are you willing to receive hard truths? Or do you surround yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear? People who will, who will tickle your itching ears rather than speak the truth in love to help you deal with your sin so that you might be freed from it. You see, if we take an honest look at ourselves, we realize that we're, we're not any different from these Israelites. We're not any different. We're separated in time and space, and that's about it. You know, we're guilty of committing the same sins. You and I, we are immoral idolaters. You and I, we are coveting thieves. You and I, we are people-pleasing liars who use religion as a means to get what we want. We try to appease God, but in reality, inwardly, we're running from Him and we love our sin. That's who we are. That's the reality of the situation. God is infinitely glorious and we are utterly sinful. I want to tell you something. I want you to hear this. God is far more holy than we could dare imagine. And we are far more sinful than we would dare admit. Now, you'll be pleased to know that my next two points are much shorter than that. We'll breeze through those, hopefully, fairly quickly. But I wanted to labor on this one point, the problem. Because if we don't get this, if we don't catch the glory of God and the sinfulness of man, the next two points don't even matter. They don't even matter. The penalty, when we look at the justice of God and we look at the punishment of man, we're just going to see that as mean if we do not recognize how glorious God is and how sinful we really are. But the promise, the promise will not seem sweet. We won't love it. We won't cherish it because we don't ultimately think we need it. So, number two, the penalty, the justice of God and the punishment of man. 
Friends, the glory of God demands that he punish sin. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly blameless, perfectly righteousness, perfectly good. He cannot sin, nor can he have anything to do with sin. And I want you to understand something. Sin by nature is an affront to the character of God. When we sin, we're not just breaking some arbitrary rules. Like when it comes to moral law, once upon a time, everything was gray. And then God decided, okay, I'm going to separate white from black. And I guess I'm going to choose black to be evil and white to be good. And I'm going to think about certain things and kind of put them into these two categories. Let's think of murder. Should we murder? Should we not murder? Um, I'm going to put that in the black category. Or thou shalt not bear false witness. Um, Well, you know, you could... I'll go ahead and put that in the black category too. That's not the way that God did it. You see, God is is the life-giving God. He speaks life into existence. And so to murder, to take away life, is a denial of the very character of God. To lie. God is truth. God always speaks truth. God wants the truth to be known. So when we lie, we're, we're, it's an affront to the very character of God. These are not arbitrary things. God's laws reveal to us the perfect nature of God. And so he takes sin very seriously. The glory of God demands that he deal with righteousness. He deal with, with, with our sin righteously, with justly. You know, he can't simply overlook our sin. Do you realize that if he did, he would be denying himself? And he cannot do that. Because if he did, he would not be righteous. He would not be just. He would not be good. He would not be holy. His justice must be upheld. You know, Micah presents this courtroom setting in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, where God is standing in heaven as the judge who will deal with sin impartially. He will deal with it rightly, because he is a righteous God. But God is also a witness against us. It describes that coming down, that treading upon the high places as he makes his way to the earth to stand and bear witness to what is really in the heart of man. So God is both judge and witness. But not only that, the judge summons every single one of us to stand before and observe and see if there is any injustice in his judgment. And the reality is, we will not find any. No one will stand before the judgment of seat of God and say, that is not fair. You have gone too far. You are mean. You are vindictive. You are hateful. No one will say that. Instead, fall on their knees like Isaiah. Say, woe to me, I am undone. I am undone. God's glory demands that he punish sin. In chapters 1 and 2, Micah prophesied how God would punish Israel. We see a lot of it. We'll kind of move through this thing quickly. Verses 6 and 7, God promises a complete decimation of Samaria. Before her sin, the northern kingdom would be completely destroyed. And this prophecy is actually fulfilled during the ministry of Micah. I mean, how amazing would that be? For God to give you a word, you say it, and you see it happen in your lifetime. In in chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, God warns various cities to flee, lest they go into exile. And God actually makes a play on their names, on the names of these cities to pronounce his judgment against them. Like Bethlehem, and that's a really difficult one because you want to say Bethlehem, you know, kind of whatever. Um, it means house of dust. And, that mean, and they will mournfully go into the dust or roll in the dust. The beautiful Shafir, she will go forth as captives in nakedness and shame. Zanan which means to go out, as to go out to battle, will actually cower within their walls, afraid to go out. Beth Ezel, which means house of taking away, will be taken away. Marath, the bitter, will wait anxiously for good, but will receive none. And Merishah, the mighty conqueror, will be conquered. 
in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the land, including that which was stolen by these covetous, oppressive leaders, will be taken away. The false prophets, we'll find out in chapter 3, will be silenced. They will be removed from their position. Everybody will face the judgment. They'll either die by the sword, they'll die by pestilence, or they'll go into exile. They'll be removed from the land of blessing. They'll be removed from fellowship with God. All that they wanted, all that they tried to find their soul satisfaction in, will be completely removed. And they were left without hope and without God in the world. Friends, do you realize that sin will be judged? I mean, we can read this, we can say that we believe this, but do we really believe that sin will be judged? That each person will give an account to God? You know, we too are in exile. We too are separated from God. And if we remain in our sin, we will remain exiled from God for all eternity. That we will face the just wrath of God forever. So Micah warns us too. We're included in this passage. Do you realize that? Chapter 1, verse 2. Here we are. Here we are. Here, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. He is saying, I want you to see this. I am going to judge Samaria and Judah. I want you to bear witness to this fact so that you know that I will indeed judge sin. This serves as a warning to us that it will happen, that unless we repent, we too will be judged. This glorious God who impartially searches the hearts of sinful man will punish sin. It will happen. I hope none of you are cringing in your seats right now. Okay? I hope none of you are thinking to yourself, man, if I bolt for the door, I don't really don't think anybody's going to catch me. Now, uh, where did I put my coat? If this is you, I want you to understand something. Okay? I think it will change the way you look at, at what's happening here. Last week, we looked at one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And we realized that Micah was from the town of Morasheth. Okay? Morasheth was one of the towns on the list that he warned. And all these little towns, these unknown towns in, in verses 1 through 16 are all neighboring cities of this little town of Morasheth. You see what's happening here? Micah is warning his neighbors. He is not some holier-than-thou prophet who purchased himself up on the temple and proclaims judgment and condemnation against some distant, unrelated foreigners. Micah's preaching to his kinsmen, to his people, his neighbors, his family, his friends. Micah is pleading with the people that he loves, and he's saying, guys, get out, get out. This judgment is going to fall on Judah too. Get out while you still can. I'm begging you. I love you. I care about you. And I want to see you restored to God, but it can't happen if you stay here. It can't, so get out. It changes the way that you look at this, doesn't it? And friends, I want you to understand something. When I stand up here and I talk about sin and I talk about judgment... I'm not standing up here as some holier-than-thou super preacher who is trying to exalt himself and make you feel bad about yourself. That's not what I'm trying to do. I, like Micah, am intimately pleading with you, please, repent and follow God. Do what God asks of you. Though I may not know you well... Because I have received the love of God, I love you. I care about you. And I want to see you repent and follow God. This is what I'm saying to you.
I want to see you satisfied. I want to see you happy. But I want to see you happy in God. Because He is the only thing that can truly satisfy your soul. So speaking the truth in love, I say this so that you might receive mercy and so that you might have hope. You know, fortunately for us, it doesn't end with the problem and the penalty. Though God would be just to just leave us under his judgment, to leave us right there. He doesn't owe us anything. We've sinned against him. We know we have. In his mercy, he gives us hope. He gives us promise. Through Jesus Christ. I want us to look at verses, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. God says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, if you notice, the verse right before this was all condemnation. This is a complete about face. God's tone totally changes from one of righteous anger to this head uplifting kindness and mercy. Though by rights he ought to judge us. He ought to leave us in judgment in his mercy. He gives us this promise that he will again gather his flock. He will deliver them. He will guide them. Once again, they will be his sheep and he will be their shepherd. He will be with them to lead them, to protect them, to guide them. You know, this promise we actually see it's partially fulfilled in 701 when God delivered Judah from the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army had surrounded Jerusalem and they were going to completely decimate it and God miraculously delivers the people of Judah. But it's only a partial fulfillment because remember in chapter 1 verse 16, God promises you will go into exile. You will go into exile. And this doesn't happen for a, another 100 years, for over another 100 years that the people of Judah actually go into exile. So it's not a completely fulfilled promise. And Micah will later prophesy in chapter 5 that there will be this shepherd king who is born in Bethlehem, who will lead his people with the strength and the majesty of the Lord. So this promise remains, telling of a future deliverance of a remnant. Not just a remnant that would return from exile, but a remnant that will be delivered by the one true shepherd. Okay? And this imagery is picked up in the New Testament and then is applied to Jesus. I mean, we can look at a lot of texts, but I only want to mention one. It comes out of the mouth of Jesus in John 10, 14 through 16. We looked at it about a month or so ago. Where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Friends, this is the blessed hope of man. God will gather his sheep to lead, to guide, and to deliver them. This shepherd King, whom God sends, will break through the breaches that hold his people captive. He will rescue them from their bondage and will lead them as their king. He's going to be both their Lord and their Savior. Friends, Mike is speaking of Jesus. He is speaking of Jesus. He's not only talking about a military defense, he's prophesying of this breach, this rift, that separates us from God. Our sin holds us captive, and we are enslaved to it. It has power over us, and like Micah says in chapter 1, verse 9, it is incurable. We have no ability to deliver ourselves from it. But thanks be to God that we don't have to. We don't have to. God sent His Son 
the good shepherd, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for us. He offered himself as a substitute to pay the penalty of sin, of our sin. Jesus breached the division that separated us from God, and he bids us to come and to follow him. Friends, we have the hope of freedom from sin and reconciliation to God if we would just repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. As the Son of God, He alone has the authority to free us from sin. By willingly offering His life as a sacrifice for ours, He took the judgment upon, of God upon Himself so that we do not have to. And because He was raised to life again, we have a guarantee of a restored relationship with God. And we also have the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in faithful obedience. This glorious God, He has made a way for sinful man to pass through the just judgment, the just punishment for sin by placing that penalty upon his own son so that we can receive the promise of mercy and hope through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, Micah has just preached the gospel to us. He's just preached the gospel and I pray that you would receive it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we We come to you realizing that we don't fully recognize and appreciate your glory. But God, I pray that you have worked here today through your word to open our eyes greater, to behold the magnificent wonder, the glorious splendor, the weightiness of who you are. And that that would cause us to take a reflective look downward to see ourselves more rightly. God, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we are immoral idolaters, that we are coveting thieves, that we are people-pleasing liars who try to use religion as a means to get what we want, all the while hating you and loving our sin. But God, we pray, recognizing that you are completely just and have every right to punish us for all eternity, that you have offered us mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would receive it, that we would truly hope in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that would result in an unfading, undefiled hope for us. It would satisfy our every longing. And so may we glory in our Redeemer. It's in His name we pray. Amen.